0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio
1: show featuring your
0: physician hosts,
1: Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr.
0: Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine.
1: And it should be noted that the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association.
0: Today, our special guest will be Dr. Brandon Brown, who happens to be the living answer to the question of, what do you get when you cross a philosopher with a pediatric radiologist? Not that you've been asking it, but you get that answer nevertheless. (laughs) He will discuss amazing advances in treating little tiny patients, so tiny they're still in their mother's wombs. But first, we'll look at some recent medical news with Andrew.
1: I have got some very interesting medical news today. I came across an article recently from actually the British Medical Journal, which, you know, it's still in English, but a foreign journal, which is very nice. (laughs) Yeah, they speak
0: British, we speak
1: English. (laughs) (laughs) The King's English. Yes. We uh, today would like to discuss penicillin allergies. Tom, how many people do you see with allergies to penicillin?
0: I would say... Ten to twenty percent of the patients coming in say they have an allergy. Most of them don't know what it means.
1: Okay, you you have a a little bit of dubiousness in your voice. Is it because you've you've seen that a lot of times these people don't really have penicillin allergies?
0: Well, they don't have it, and they don't know why it's on there. But
1: somebody at some point told them you're allergic to penicillin. Don't receive it. Yes, I I've had the same experience, and it's been very frustrating, especially when I was going through training, trying to figure out, gee whiz, is is everybody really allergic to this stuff or, you know, and eventually you realize that allergy does not mean the same thing to doctors as it does to patients. Oh, boy, you nailed that. And so that's, that's one big caveat. And then penicillin individually is a pretty unique thing because it's so ubiquitous. It's been around for a long time. We use it for so many different things, and so more people get exposed. It's not only ubiquitous, it's everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So the, the British Medical Journal um, in June of this, this year, 2018, has come out with a... Uh, I'm going to just start with the punchline here. Rarely do people have a true penicillin allergy. And even the people who think they have a penicillin allergy, about 8% of the general population, you take all comers, and 10% of hospitalized patients think they have a penicillin allergy. yet when they're tested, ninety five percent of them are negative. Wow, that's huge. So literally one in twenty people who think they have a penicillin allergy really have a penicillin allergy. Most of the time, you know it it could have been a rash, which a lot of times we treat infections um, that could cause a rash with penicillin. Sometimes uh, infections that are viral cause rashes. Uh, and they shouldn't get penicillin, but a, a lot of times in the past especially, people would give it just just to be safer, nip it in the bud, as they say. Um, but then a lot of times people also talk about nausea, vomiting, or other side effects that really are not IgE-mediated. IgE being? And that's a type of immunoglobulin related to the true anaphylactic allergic response. So it's an antibody, and antibodies
0: are typically what are responsible for, allergic reactions. So many patients think that anything bad that happens when you take a medicine is an allergy.
1: And it, it's, it's frustrating for us because not only, okay, so the patient has a desire to stay away from penicillin, okay, duly noted. However, that has implications into other families of medicines. Right. There's other classes of antibiotics and other medicines in general. If they react to this, they may react to that. All of a sudden, our hands are really tied Yes. And the, the really interesting thing to come out of this journal article is the risk of problems when people think they have a penicillin allergy and they do not. Um, the, the main things are superbugs and other infections. A, a common one that we talk about in medicine a lot is Clostridium difficile. causes very bad diarrhea. It comes from taking strong antibiotics that wipe out the healthy bacteria in your colon, and then it leaves room for this bad bacteria to grow very hard to treat, very expensive to treat, very messy, very stinky, okay? <laughs> and so Clostridium difficile is not good. But the people who reported a penicillin allergy had over a 25% increased risk of getting C. diff because when they go to the doctor and they need an antibiotic, they're going to get the stronger, more expensive ones that have more side effects rather than penicillin, which is tried and true and really the best choice for a lot of things.
0: Well, it's inexpensive. Uh... We know quite a bit about it, and it kills so many things. And if you can take something simple and cheap with relatively
1: few downsides, why not? A hundred percent. The other big one is MRSA, which a lot of people have heard of, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. They had almost a 70%, percent seven zero percent increased risk of developing MRSA if they claimed a penicillin allergy because we're forced to do the fancy antibiotics.
0: So what do you recommend people or physicians do when confronted with a patient who says they have a penicillin allergy? The,
1: the biggest thing that, that I always try and do, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, encouraged to continue, is try and get to the basis of what really happened. I've had people tell me, my mom had a penicillin allergy, and I was told to tell everyone that I do just to be safe, you know?
0: <laughs> what do they say if, well, it was 50 years ago, they said I had a rash or something and shouldn't have it? What would you do with that patient?
1: Testing. We, we don't have really easy testing, but the best testing we have right now would be a skin test, a prick test for penicillin followed by an oral challenge. You give them um, oral penicillin to see what happens. This should be done in a supervised setting with you know epinephrine readily available if they do have an anaphylactic reaction. But even for people with an IgE-mediated allergy, anaphylaxis is exceptionally rare with penicillin. So in the scope of people with penicillin allergies... There is a very, very, very small number of people who truly have them. The rest of the people are really suffering from a, a false label.
0: So is, is anaphylaxis like Anna Karenina, a famous Russian novel? Or, what is that all about?
1: <laughs> That's a, a great question. I have to think about the etymology there. But <laughs> um, anaphylaxis, you know, when, when I try and think of it, it is where your throat starts, not 100%, but in general, your throat would start swelling up. Frequently, people would require intubation. You would develop hives. That would be an itchy rash that comes on very quickly, less than an hour for sure, definitely usually within minutes, and it would require urgent medical treatment. People do not have anaphylactic reactions and get better on their own.
0: So it's like a whole body allergic reaction.
1: Yes. It, you will not miss it. If, if you wonder, I wonder if I had anaphylaxis, you most certainly did not. Um, it is something that will come and find you. You don't need to look for it. So
0: it's kind of like if you saw Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, where the female (laughs) weather reporter is allergic to, um, I I don't know if it was nuts or something, and she got bitten to one she just swelled up three times her normal size. That would be something like anaphylaxis.
1: Correct. And so it's (laughs) it's something that is very much a, a real thing and extremely dangerous. We think about it a lot in medicine. However, in reality, especially related to penicillin, extraordinarily rare.
0: Thank you for that helpful tidbit. And maybe now for one short little piece of information, courtesy of Andrew.
1: Yeah, I've, I'm going back to our USPSTF recommendations with one, you know, we're getting into the boring ones here. It basically says in, in 2014 they recommended to reduce your risk of heart disease, you got to exercise and lose weight. Okay. Great. So that's, man, that's easy. And so it's hard to condense that even into three things, but I just made a <laughs> list of a couple important things that I think, you know, everybody knows this, right? Good, so of to the wall, Andrew. So many of us don't do it. Uh, we know that 80, 80% about of, Amer- of American adults are overweight or obese. Um, we know that a third of people die of heart disease. It's the number one cause of death. We know that over the last three years, life expectancy has been going down in America. Wow. Which is very uncommon historically. We always go up, 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 yes. and we're going down now. And so, what do you do about it? I know we, we had a whole show dedicated to weight loss, and, and the uh, specialist on there was a, a big fan of, you know, especially a low carbohydrate approach. There's a role for that because the body metabolizes carbs first. But I think the people who are most successful long-term always look to moderation as a a major virtue. So, you know, keeping carbs at a minimum, but I usually recommend going back to counting the calories. A lot of of people minimize this because it is so boring, but it is so (laughs) effective. I tell patients that the 2,000-calorie diet on the back of cereal boxes or other foodstuffs was based on a 6-foot-tall, 180-pound male. So if you are a 5-foot-1 woman, you do not need 2,000 calories a day. Um, it <laughs> I would think also about doing 30 minutes a day of exercise. If you miss a day, make it up the next day. And then at the end of the day, there are medical options. I enjoy working with people on medication-assisted weight loss for a short-term improvement to help get over the hump. And then there are people who would really benefit from bariatric surgery, and I'd, I'd refer people back to the previous show where we discussed that in more depth. But moral of the story, if you are one out of the four-fifths of Americans, as most of us are, think about this to prevent heart attacks and strokes.
0: Thank you, Andrew. And now from the USPSTF to our medical trivia question of the day. It's a short one and a good one. What is the first and only human disease that human beings have eradicated from the world? Ooh. What is the first and only human disease that we have eradicated from the face of the earth? We can plant to sign it and say blank free as of today.
1: This is a very good trivia question you might run into other places.
0: Other places trivia nights. We love it, but we'll be back after a short break with our special guest of the day, Dr. Brandon Brown. Welcome back to our interview with our special guest today, Brandon Brown. Brandon has a philosophy undergraduate and graduate uh, degree from University of Dallas and Indiana University, and he's currently associate professor of radiology, with also appointments in pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology, philosophy, and the medical humanities at the Indiana University School of Medicine and School of Liberal Arts. He's currently a pediatric radiologist at the Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis and a founding member of a group we will discuss later, the Fetal Center at Riley Children's Health, and he's the Director of Fetal and Perinatal Imaging. He has a lot of other responsibilities in national organizations, but let's cut to the chase. Welcome to Dr. Dr. Brandon Brown.
2: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you all.
0: You know, there is a term here that we use, and I want to go right at it. You provide medical care for fetuses. But the term fetus is looked at by some people as a way for us doctors to try to intellectualize the humanity of what most parents would call a baby. So is that really what doctors are doing when they use the term fetus?
2: You know, it's a tricky thing. There's been so much politics that it's insinuated its way into this conversation that we need to kind of specify what we're doing when we use these terms and politically speaking i think you're right i think the term fetus can be a way to dehumanize human life at its earlier stages but medically speaking fetus is a developmental stage just like embryo just like newborn or toddler or child and we need to make those distinctions because it would be inappropriate if we treated a child like an adult or if we treated a newborn like a teenager Uh, Or if we treated a fetus, uh, like a newborn. So we really need to know what's happening developmentally, what the right treatment and diagnoses uh, should be. And so when we use the term fetus in the context of fetal medicine, it's because we're trying to treat conditions that are developing, sometimes changing quite rapidly from week to week.
1: So so Brandon, how do you know when a, a fetus or an unborn baby needs a radiologist? (laughs)
2: Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. So um, medical imaging is a part of the care of all ages, but it's especially important at the earliest ages because the younger the patient is, the less they are able to express what's wrong with them, to be able to really discuss their pain or their condition. And that's true for, you know, children and of course, babies, but it's especially true for the unborn because they can't express anything and we can't examine them and we can't even look at them. So all we really have is imaging. And so as you know, we're all familiar, ultrasound is a, is a very common part of pregnancy in the United States. But there are some pregnancies that are so complicated by growth abnormality or a congenital defect that we need more clarity. We need more imaging that can reveal what's going on, what maybe has gone wrong. And so there are advanced forms of imaging that, that fetal radiologists specialize in, and that's what I do. And we try to provide more information for the parents to help them prepare and also for the medical team to plan what we're going to need to do diagnose and and treat these conditions.
1: Now, Brandon, a lot of times when people are pregnant and there's the opportunity for extra, you know, consults or extra imaging, they say, well, I love my baby anyways. You know, I'm not going to have an abortion. I I don't want to do those extra tests. When when would be the time to know that those extra tests are necessary? And, And apart from people who would unfortunately choose abortion why would we want to know all this extra information
2: yeah i think that's a great question because if we can't do anything with it sometimes it's just a temptation to despair or even worse to you know act against life but as we've developed better and better tools and treatments there are actually now some interventions which are possible before birth, fetal surgeries and fetal interventions, which can really dramatically improve the chances uh, at life for select conditions. And even for those babies who aren't going to be able to be eligible for a fetal surgery or a fetal procedure there are some conditions that require immediate treatment after birth and i mean minutes to hours after birth so if we're not prepared if we don't fully understand what's going on we might not have that mother deliver in the correct place we might not have the correct specialized team there and uh, it really does require a team effort there's so many moving parts There's so much at stake. Sometimes we even have to perform procedures while the baby is still connected to mom through the umbilical cord. So timing is really of the essence, and uh, getting that extra information, not for every condition, but for a growing number of conditions can can make the difference between survival or not making it.
0: So, Brandon, are most of the babies that you have to image – further than ultrasound based on the ultrasound that you do routinely during pregnancy? Or are there other reasons why you might do the the more extensive imaging?
2: It's almost always ultrasound that gives us the first clue. It's our screening test. It's a great way to look at pregnancy. It's fast. It's portable. It's non-invasive. And it's available throughout the United States. Is it Uh, true to avoid
0: x-rays as one of those tests?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. We definitely want to avoid any kind of radiation, which we do use in adults and sometimes in children because it can, it can help reveal uh, serious problems. But for pregnancies, it's especially dangerous because they're developing, these new lives are developing so rapidly. So we avoid anything like an x-ray or a CAT scan that has radiation. The beauty of ultrasound and also of MRI is that they don't use radiation and they can reveal things without any added risk.
0: So tell our listeners, what are some of the things you do detect in these little patients?
2: Well, I would say that the biggest category of challenges that we face are when the body doesn't close around certain organs. So a normal part of development very early on, and I mean very early, so six or seven weeks, some women don't even realize they're pregnant at this point, is that the body it has to close around a tube. There's a tube in the front and the tube in the back for all of us. and in the front, it contains all our organs, and in the back, it contains our spine and our brain. And so if there is a failure of that normal process of closing those tubes, then we can have abnormalities where there are organs out of the body that should be on the inside, or where the spine is exposed when it should be covered and protected. And so uh, these are conditions that are not just challenging for the life of the child, but even for the process of delivery. Uh, you can imagine if there's an organ that's outside when it should be inside, that that baby trying to deliver is going to have some real difficulties. So we need to be able to identify that and plan accordingly. We have to change the way we deliver and sometimes the location where we deliver because this is pretty specialized medical care, and uh, there are only select places in the country that are focused on this type of condition.
0: If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio as we talk to Dr. Brandon Brown about
1: fetal medicine imaging and treatment. Brandon, when when you're in involved with some of these patients, you were talking about specialized teams. When would we know that, that a fetus does need a specialized team to deliver this care?
2: Well, I think that the better question maybe would be to say when when is it possible to manage this with just one type of physician? And most healthy pregnancies can be managed with one type of physician, and that would be uh, an obstetrician. And that's what most women get, and that's all that they need for the average healthy uncomplicated pregnancy. But the more concerning conditions that we can detect in, in the prenatal period, uh, the more of a team effort it needs to be. And that's really something that we talk about a lot in medicine, team effort and collaboration and patient-centered care. And I think that's a noble goal, and it's something that everyone in healthcare is working towards, but it's especially critical at this stage because you have, before you even get into what the condition is, you've got two different unique patients – You've got a mother who has a very unique set of conditions and possibly challenges. And then you've got this unborn baby that requires a different set of specialized care. So you've already got two patients. And then depending on what might be wrong, both with the mother and, and the various gestational conditions like hypertension or preeclampsia, etc., or with the, with the baby, all these fetal conditions um, that may require surgery, surgery, or various other procedures, there are so many different areas to be aware of that it really requires a highly specialized team. So there are surgeons at the table, neurosurgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons. Then there are obstetricians and gynecologists, and, and including a specialized type of OBGYN called a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And then there are newborn specialists neonatologists who are focused on those earliest moments after birth. And then uh, my own area is imaging. So there are imaging specialists, fetal and pediatric radiologists, and it really requires a very concerted effort from this diverse team that has, everybody's got to put their egos aside. They've got to put any kind of, you know, angling for position aside and just focus on the patient and really figure out how we can work as a well-oiled machine to, to take care of these very vulnerable lives. You've
0: just described, you know, your team makeup for your fetal center, but you were a founding member of the fetal center. Uh, what brought that about and what was that founding experience like?
2: You know, it's, it's a really wonderful thing that I was a part of, and I, I wish I could take credit for making it happen, but I think in many ways there was a providential element to it. I found myself joining the faculty at IU School of Medicine about four or five years ago, just around the time that they had received a large donation through a foundation to focus more and better care on these most vulnerable pregnancies. And there's a growing number of centers around the country in large urban areas that are developing what we call fetal centers that are really committed to these, the sickest of the sick and what I like to call the least among us, the, the most delicate and vulnerable uh, points at life. And we decided that we wanted to create a center, not so much a bricks and mortar center. Of course, that's part of it, having a nice building with some fancy spaces and uh, fancy equipment. But really, we wanted to create a center of people who worked well together, that were part of a culture that was trying to do something uh, that was bigger than any one of us alone. And so we decided to start meeting on a regular basis, and we decided to start discussing every single one of these cases as a team. So we meet on a regular basis on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. It's early, but that's when everybody can be there, and it's the most remarkable experience I've ever had in medicine where we all sit together, sometimes 40 or 50 physicians in a room, and uh, it'll be a diverse group of surgeons and pediatric specialists and medical specialists and imaging and palliative care and ethics and chaplains, nursing, and we all talk about these really unique, very sick conditions and uh, how we can manage it and what each of us can contribute to the care and we talk it through and we work out various ideas and we develop a plan and then a smaller group of five or six physicians meets with each family to discuss that plan and to help them prepare you know because it's a big journey it's one thing to say you've got to have this surgery and that medication but sometimes these procedures are part of a long process of weeks or months and if you don't live in a large urban center you are going to have to consider some big life changes. You may have to move for three or four or five months. You may have to reconsider your job arrangement. So these families need to, time to plan. They need to prepare. So we try to be really sensitive, not just to the medical needs, the scientific needs, uh, but also the human side and to help the families get ready for what ends up being a pretty challenging journey for them, That and they need our support.
1: You know, Brandon, you mentioned the families. I'd like to take a quick break, but then we will be right back and we'd like to hear some stories about those families. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor coming back from our break talking to Dr. Brandon Brown. And Brandon, I wondered if you could share with us, you know, maybe a story about. Uh, a patient that, that particularly touched you, and especially some of these diseases that you get to treat frequently?
2: Sure, absolutely. I think um, a condition that many of us have at least heard of is a condition of spina bifida, which is a large category of disease where the spine is not properly covered by the vertebral bodies and the skin. So the spinal cord can sometimes be exposed to... Completely, Or there can be a, a small sack of fluid around it in the lower back. And that's a big problem because as everyone knows, the spinal cord is what sends out nerves to our body and the lower spinal cord controls everything from walking to bowel and bladder function and a whole variety of associated uh, parts of daily life that we just take for granted. And so these babies and these pregnancies are really at risk. Uh, they can develop injury to the spinal cord, depending on whether it's recognized in time, and they can also develop an accumulation of fluid, just, not just in their spine, but also in their brain, which has complications as well. And would so, this
0: be in the category of diseases we call neural tube defects? You were talking about two that's tubes, and that's why we take folic acid. And that's why. That's right.
2: That's why that's right. Some... Yeah. It's... Good. Women are, are are constantly being reminded to take their folate, and it's because that's uh, pretty crucial very, very early on at those weeks before you even sometimes know you're pregnant to make sure that that spine gets protected properly during development. Uh, and when it doesn't, uh, it can really cause pretty severe problems, and so we've, we've gotten, uh, I think, a pretty good system for identifying this through ultrasound, and then we can do uh, other forms of advanced imaging like MRI to really understand where the vulnerable area is and what it's going to take to repair it, and we've developed um, a method to repair it even in the womb, so certain patients who have the right kind of defect and the right kind of conditions who are eligible uh, can go to certain centers around the country and have this repaired even before their baby is ready to be born. And that, it's actually a fetal surgery that takes place. And then that fetus is put back in the womb. It's closed again. And mom uh, hopefully is able to continue to carry that pregnancy to term. And we're seeing a lot of good results from doing these surgeries, uh, before birth, so it 's a pretty remarkable thing, something that wouldn 't have even been considered in the past, but is is showing a lot of promise. but it also has complications for the babies, so even in the best of cases, there are problems down the road these These children face challenges, and uh, sometimes they they learn how to do the daily functions slower than other babies, and sometimes they never learn some of the functions that we take for granted and so it's a it's a very vulnerable population and it's a population that that doesn't even come up in certain parts of the world because of uh, the way that abortion can just eliminate these inconvenient lives from our consciousness
0: so i remember hearing you speak about this earlier this year saying that very thing that in other centers they wouldn't be treating these patients the parents would have been counseled or recommended to have an abortion so they would never treat them does that really happen
3: yeah
2: it's it's quite startling i think for those of us who have lived for some time in the midwest and gotten used to the the norms and attitudes here to realize that the way we think about things here is not the way that everyone in the world thinks about things and particularly in europe Uh, although this also applies to some degree to Canada and the east coast of the United States, there are centers where large volumes of patients are coming through, but you'll see no babies or newborns or children with this neural tube defect, this spina bifida condition. And, of course, that's not because it doesn't happen there. It happens, but uh, they feel like they're doing society a service by not allowing these children to be born at all, which is a pretty chilling realization. Do you ever
0: meet other physicians or parents who finally at some point experience this cognitive dissonance when they realize that while our laws permit the killing of physically normal unborn babies, you at your center are actually saving physically challenged unborn babies who are at the same stage of development as those who are being killed in the womb?
2: Yeah, I, I can't think of a, a particular example, but I definitely have encountered uh, multiple colleagues who feel very unsettled, you know, regardless of their religious or theological background, who feel very unsettled by the idea that we're going to create a standard of acceptable human health or acceptable human function, and then below that say, you don't deserve to. To exist. You don't deserve to be part of our society, and so we're not going to allow you to be part of our society. Uh, it's, it's eerily reminiscent of trends in the earlier 20th century when we thought we were going to help everyone by getting rid of unwanted elements in the gene pool.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a very scary thing. I mean, would, would you say that many of the patients that you get to work with, the, the parents have been counseled to abort the child beforehand?
2: I think that parents are cautioned, depending on who they see, about the challenges they're going to face. And an increasing number of parents and of patients in general are concerned when they hear about a condition on ultrasound or, you know, maybe a genetic test that's going to cause problems. And they're worried. I think it's very natural to be worried and it's very natural to be concerned. Uh, But one thing that we've been noticing more and more is that there are a lot of uncertainties in prenatal diagnosis. We don't deal in absolutes. We don't deal in 100% confirmed findings. So a lot of times we're speculating on what we think might happen. And I can think of many, many cases in my experience when the initial imaging raised a concern for this or that problem in the brain or elsewhere. And then subsequent imaging revealed that it was a mistake, that there's no problem at all. This is actually a perfectly normal, healthy baby. So I,
3: Man, I try to counsel <laughs> parents
2: to be cautious. Yeah, because these are not absolutes. And they're, they're dealing in very grave decisions. They're dealing in life and death based on very limited and uh, partial information.
0: Now, Brandon, you know that some of the babies, no matter what you do for them, will die at or shortly after birth. How does the fetal center help prepare those parents for what's going to happen?
2: You know, we, we have a very fortunate situation in that so many of the families that we deal with are very much committed to doing whatever they can to help show as much love and affection to their child uh, for whatever time they have with their child. And they're committed to doing whatever it takes to keep mom safe and healthy and to keep the baby safe and healthy. And even in those situations where we don't think we're going to be able to provide any kind of final cure and that ultimately you know, we don't control nature and some things are out of our hands, many of these families need to have a conversation with us about comfort care, which I would describe as showing as much love and affection to these lives as we can, even if it's only for minutes, Uh, or hours after birth. And I don't think that's insignificant. I don't think that that's meaningless. Sometimes we focus in medicine so much on success in treatment, cures, that we forget that even when cure is not possible, that comfort and love is a very important part of our job. So we can't can't always
0: cure, but we can always care.
2: That's right, yeah, and I think that parents need to be encouraged in that because they sense that. Their instincts are so good, and they know uh, deep down that maybe all they can do to offer their child is to hold them and show them some affection for whatever time they have after birth, and that's not meaningless. That's not insignificant.
1: Well, I think that y- you may have hit one of the nails on the head there too because there are so many people in medicine that if, if you know, you know, if, if you view death as a defeat and you know with some of these patients you're going to lose you 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 i mean we're all going to die eventually but you know these these patients are going to die early they would rather not even try and help but that's one of the things that i always have reflected on the difference of a, a catholic especially but people of faith who are in healthcare, catholic physicians you know it's not about the victory of necessarily curing a disease although it's great when that happens it's about walking that road with the patient and even you know even if it's a short one but you know I I always reflect on the word compassion you know uh, coming from to suffer with trying to be there with the patient Mm. even in the depths of the suffering even when you know that cure is not gonna happen you're just you're just trying to help them anyway way that you can
2: right yeah, I really agree with what you said. Um, sometimes I think that there are people who are so focused on trying to help a pregnancy get to delivery that they feel like that's the finish line, that that's mission accomplished, when in reality that's just the beginning. And many of these families and these children are going to need support and care and help because they've got a long, hard journey ahead and they've got struggles to overcome. And so that's not the end. We, we need to be there for our... Um, you know, the members in our community and and our friends and our loved ones who are all around us who are going to continue to try to care for the least among us, and we need to be there for them as well.
0: In our final minute, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners that you consider most important?
2: Well, I would say that one of the most valuable things that I think I've ever been able to offer to families is to show them that I am not able to experience what they're going through, but that I really appreciate the challenges that they face and that they're not going to struggle alone. I think so many families feel isolated when they encounter a terrible condition or a devastating disease uh, in their unborn child. And I think that as a community, as a medical community, we need to be not just focused on the science of medicine, treatments and cures and medications, but also on the human side, which is to be willing to shoulder some of the burden of these diagnoses with our patients, to walk with them, to journey and struggle with them, and to comfort even when we can't cure.
0: Dr. Brandon Brown, philosopher, radiologist, renaissance man, it's been a true pleasure to have you with us today on Dr.
2: <laughs> Doctor. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it.
1: This is Dr. Andrew Mullally coming back from the studios of Redeemer Radio with Dr. Doctor and Dr. Tom. I would like to hear the answer to that trivia question. It was a really good one today.
0: It is. It's very practical. The question is, name the first and only human disease eradicated from the entire planet through the work of physicians and public health care workers. And that disease has not been seen on the earth since 1978, but in our parents' and grandparents' generation, it was a big problem. In fact, uh, as recently as the 20th century, there were three to five hundred million deaths from this disease, and even in 1967, there were 15 million cases of this disease.
1: Holy cow. Tom, drum roll. And,
0: you know, actually cow is important because cowpox led to the first vaccination of any disease and was for this disease, smallpox. Yes, Edward Jenner, back in 1798, came up with the first vaccination uh, for a disease. And it was against smallpox when he realized that milkmaids who uh, were exposed to cowpox had great complexions. They never got the scarring of smallpox. And it was known as smallpox because there was also a great pox. That was what they called syphilis way back when. So smallpox has been eradicated on future shows. We'll talk about what are the most likely next diseases are to be eradicated. But right now, that's the only one we've gotten rid of with vaccination. And by the way, the word vaccination is different than the word immunization. Vaccination is actually specific for smallpox. Do you know
1: why? Because actually, you're gonna to have to tell me.
0: Uh, because the uh, Latin for cow is uh, vacca. Ah, that's right. V a c c a. So that's where we From get the, the root cow. for vaccination. So vaccination, by um, you know, specific etymology, refers just to that for. Uh, smallpox, Tom, immunization refers to everything.
1: I wish you read more so you could be more helpful I, I, on this show. I'm
0: trying to do that. I'm <laughs> trying to do that. Okay. So enough of that. We are now to our highly enjoyable Lineker for the Lady segment, and we have with us on the line today Dr. Donna Harrison, an obstetrician-gynecologist, who is the executive director for the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetrician-Gynecologists. Donna, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
3: Thank you for having
0: me. Donna, you wrote an article with a co-author, Maureen Kondik, on treatment of ectopic pregnancy and ethical reanalysis. This is really a a thorny problem, of course, for our listeners. Ectopic pregnancy is when the tiny little baby, known as an embryo, gets stuck in the fallopian tube on its journey to the uterus, and it can't make it to the womb. What are the different aspects of this problem that you have to deal with as an obstetrician?
3: Well... When the baby implants someplace other than the womb, then, especially if the baby implants in the tube, then as that baby grows, that tube can rupture and the mom can die from hemorrhaging inside. So it is one of those gynecologic emergencies that we have to we have to do something. And we wish we could save both the baby and the mom, but right now at this point in technology, we can save the mom by taking out the ectopic pregnancy.
1: Okay, and that leads to the ethical issues. You know, one one of the things that caught me about the title was a reanalysis. How is your analysis different than kind of the standard thinking about ectopic pregnancies?
3: Well, um, part of what we did in our paper was we looked to say, how many times is there really a moral problem? Because see, the moral problem is that when an embryo is formed, that embryo is a human person, and every human person bears the image of God, regardless of how old or how young or where that person lives. So we don't take lightly the taking of a human life, the ending of a human life. And in an ectopic pregnancy, uh, the standard analysis is that um, in order to separate uh, the mother and the fetus, uh, the physician has to cut the fallopian tube or a segment of the fallopian tube out in order to do that treatment. And the reason is because there is such a respect for human life that we don't want to to do something to directly attack that human being. So it has been seen, it has been looked at as an attack on the the fetus, on the embryo, um, to um, take out just the embryo. And but so what we, some, yeah, some
1: people who might not have the pro-life persuasion, there, there are standard treatments out there that might attack the embryo, embryo directly, even if it's alive. Is that correct?
3: That's correct. So what we did was we, we wanted to look at this from a little different perspective. When we separate the mom and the fetus or the mom and the embryo to save the mother's life, the purpose of doing that separation is not an intent to kill the fetus. The purpose of doing the separation is an attempt to save both lives if we could, but to save at least one. So that's different than an elective abortion, for example, where the explicit purpose of an elective abortion is to produce a dead baby. That's, that was made very clear at the partial birth abortion hearings uh, where the abortionists argued that you couldn't ban partial birth abortion because it would infringe their trade because their product is a dead baby. So wow. in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, our product is not a dead baby. Our product is the separation of the two so that the mom can live. And if we could allow the baby to live, we would. Um, now, most of the time in ectopic pregnancies, there really isn't a living fetus. So in some studies that have looked at uh, how often you see a fetus with a heartbeat, which you should see from four and a half weeks pregnancy. We don't see a fetus with a heartbeat in about 93, 94% of ectopic pregnancies. The embryo got to a certain point and didn't develop past that point. And then if the the
1: fetus and the embryo, rather, if it's not alive, then the moral dilemma is removed. Isn't that right?
3: That's correct. So part of what we said in the paper is we need to find out if we have a living fetus. And the way we do that is by looking by ultrasound to see that's the best technology we have right now. So it's better than it
0: HCG hormone levels?
3: Well, HCG hormone levels can tell us that the, fetus is, that the pregnancy tissue is dying. So you're, you're correct. If the HCG levels are falling or they have plateaued, that, that is, they're not doubling, then that's a very good indication that there isn't a fetus with a heartbeat, but that could um, lead
1: to trouble because you need to allow time to pass to see what it's doing. Correct? It'd that's be hard correct. to make a snapshot analysis.
3: Uh, it's it's correct. You would have to have at least two points, um, so that would be several days. But in an ectopic pregnancy, that's very very early it's not at all unreasonable to wait a couple of days to see what the, what the HCG is doing. That's not an unreasonable way to go.
0: I have a more basic question in this. When there is an ectopic pregnancy, what is the source of the danger to mom? In other words, I've heard before it's a supposedly diseased, inflamed, or damaged fallopian tube. But in your paper, you say that that point of view is actually not accurate.
3: That's not accurate because if a woman takes, for example, a progesterone-only pill as a contraceptive or hormonal contraceptives that are progesterone-only, then those contraceptives actually mess up the function of the fallopian tube. So you can have a perfectly normal fallopian tube with a messed up function, which allows ectopic pregnancies because of the contraception that the woman is taking because of the hormonal contraception. So
0: contraceptives increase the rate of ectopic pregnancies, how much?
3: Progesterone only contraceptives, they can double the rate. It depends on the population, but they can double the rate of ectopic pregnancies at least.
0: So what is new, what would be the outcome based on your new analysis ethically of this situation? What would be done differently?
3: Well, what would be done differently for early ectopic pregnancies, is to look at, at and try to determine whether or not the, the baby is alive by falling hCG levels. If you have the time to follow it, if there is a, a fetus in an, an embryo that you can see by ultrasound, you look to see if there's a heartbeat. If there's no heartbeat, then that eliminates the moral burden for what both there the mom is a and heartbeat? for the doctor and if there is a heartbeat then this is where our argument differs from the standard argument and that is in the case where you have a situation where the continued union of the mother and the baby will result in the death of at least one and will probably result in the death of both then it is not unreasonable it's not a a sin to separate the mother and the fetus not with the intent of killing the fetus but with understanding that the 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 fetus, the embryo, will die at that separation. And this is a, a terrible problem, and it grieves everybody, but we would rather see at least the mom live because we know that if the ectopic pregnancy ruptures, both the mom and the baby die.
1: And so that's a, it's a kind of a reanalysis of the object of the act. Is the object of the act r- removing the baby or is the object of the act removing the disease organ, as the traditional thought process has, has said. I really appreciate you guys looking at it. You guys did an excellent job laying out the philosophical underpinnings to help us make this decision. I'm excited to see more discussion about this in the future, and I really appreciate your work on this. Well, thank you. So how would this medically be done? Is,
0: would this be a surgical procedure?
3: Well, the determination of whether or not the baby's alive, we proposed that doctors use the same criteria that they would use for a pregnancy inside the womb when we determine whether or not that baby's alive. But in order to separate the mother and the fetus, it depends on how far along in the pregnancy the mom is. Um, If the baby's alive, it will probably be a surgical procedure. And that could be taking out the tube. It could be opening the tube and separating the mother and the fetus. And and our argument is that uh, we hate to see a mom sterilized because of an ectopic pregnancy when, in fact, if the tube isn't abnormal, she may be able to go on and and have another child.
1: Hey, Donna, have you gotten any pushback about this reanalysis since it does kind of go against the traditional logic?
3: Um uh no not yet but i'm sure there will be ha-
1: have
0: you heard from any theologians who think that this has merit um
3: not yet <laughs> oh so, so this you're... is
1: hot off the press to be fair we, we just okay. got this in the most recent <laughs> lineker quarterly yes so for those of you who have not read the most recent copy please run out and get one today <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes so uh that's, that's fascinating. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask. If you separate the baby, do you try to put the baby back in the womb? Is that even possible?
3: Well, at this point in time, it's not yet possible. But I will tell you, if I can put in a little plug, that Applog is supporting some research Looking at transferring ectopic pregnancies in animal models, in the rat model. Oh. And it could certainly use some funding. And we have a, a researcher at Steubenville University who's, who's trying to, he's got uh, about a third of the funding needed to start this project. And what's and his he's name? He's trying to. His name is Dr. Stephen Samet, okay. Sammut. S A M M U T. And he, he has the whole project laid out. It's already been approved through uh, a research institute, and what we need is just funding for him
1: Man, that's because this wonderful. is an
3: important question. And if we could transfer the embryo, that would be fabulous. There, we would do it in a heartbeat. But there, right now there isn't enough research in humans to actually do that experiment on humans. We have to do it in animal models first for safety reasons. They had, they so anybody had a case who's report on that, yeah.
1: didn't they, from the early 1900s where someone uh, asserted that they were successful at that?
3: They did, but again, that was prior to ultrasound and we don't really know whether that was a concurrent ectopic and intrauterine pregnancy. That and makes so sense. It, that w- And there was another um, series, a case series, but it's never been replicated. Donna, so, this is
0: fascinating. Thank you so much for being here with us today on Dr. Doctor, Doctor and thank you for our listeners. Listening to another episode of Doctor Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, which is brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want more information about the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website cathmed.org. That's c-a-t-h-m-e-d.org. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern
1: and Dr. Andrew Malali signing off. Until next time, and remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the
2: Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.